Welcome to Protecting Animal Welfare in Today's World, Building Unity Through Understanding, a series of podcasts sponsored by the Ontario Veterinary Medical Association and the College of Veterinarians of Ontario. I'm Dr. Kim Lambert, the Associate Registrar for Quality Practice with the College of Veterinarians of Ontario, and I will be the host of the session. There are six sessions in this podcast series focused on veterinary medicine and animal welfare. This is session one, and today we are going to discuss animal welfare from a scientific, ethical, and legislative lens. I am joined by Dr. Lauren Van Patter, the Kim and Stu Lang Professor in Community and Shelter Medicine in the Department of Clinical Studies at the Ontario Veterinary College. Her research focuses on questions of living well in multi-species communities and drawing together the diverse approaches to human-animal relationships. I am also joined by Dr. Lee Neal, an Associate Professor at the Ontario Veterinary College who holds the Colonel K.L. Campbell Chair in Companion Animal Welfare. Her current research and teaching are focused on the behavior and welfare of companion animals. Welcome Lauren and Lee, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you, Kim. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this as well. Great. Well, let's start with the first area of conversation, the evolving science of animal welfare. All right. So, I mean, the AVMA definition for animal welfare refers to how animals coping with the conditions in which it lives. So at a basic level, animal welfare exists on a continuum that ranges from poor to good and is focused on how the animal is feeling based on being in good health, having the opportunity to perform natural behaviors and engage in activities that promote positive emotions, as well as being free from negative emotions such as fear and pain. So when we think about animal welfare science, there have been two major shifts that we have seen in recent years. So the first shift is towards thinking more about positive welfare for animals. So animal welfare arose in response to concerns about animal suffering, and much of the focus over the years has been on developing strategies to mitigate suffering, so providing pain relief for surgical procedures, providing sufficient space that animals can perform fundamental natural behaviors, providing sufficient food and water to avoid hunger and thirst. However, in recent years, people have been asking about what animals need for a life worth living, um, with recognition that preventing suffering is not really enough. So that animals should have opportunities for positive emotions and be able to experience happiness and joy. Um, And this is an emerging area of animal welfare science. And the big questions that we are currently grappling with are how to promote positive welfare in animals and also how to assess positive emotions because we've traditionally been focused more on negative emotions. The second shift isn't necessarily a new topic, but reinvigorated discussion about animal sentience and which animals are worthy of consideration when we are discussing concerns about animal welfare and the potential for positive and negative emotions. Most people are comfortable with extending sentience to other mammals and birds, but what about reptiles and fish or invertebrates such as octopi and bumblebees? And the discussion has really come into focus because of concern about fish welfare. Animals can't self-report their experiences, and there are major challenges with determining which specific criteria are sufficient for determining sentience, which aspects of neuroanatomy in terms of brain regions and nociceptors, which types of behavioral responses can tell us that an animal is conscious and requires consideration. 
This has been emphasized in a recent open access paper by Mason and Lavery, which emphasizes that some organisms that are clearly not sentient, such as plants and protozoa, spines that are disconnected from brains, decerebrate mammals and birds, and unaware humans, for example, people that are anesthetized, that these um, different categories can show seemingly complex behavioral responses that many have assumed are indicative of sentience, such as showing behavioral attention to an injury that is beyond a seemingly simple reflex withdrawal, or learning to avoid painful stimuli and showing an altered response with analgesia. The researchers have proposed some new experimental approaches that are better designed to clarify some of these issues, but in the meantime are suggesting careful use of the precautionary principle. When there is evidence that a species might be sentient with the capacity for feeling and suffering, we should extend them concern for their welfare and ensure that they are treated in a humane manner. So this definitely applies to all vertebrates, including fish, and has also been extended to some other species with further consideration for other species as needed. That is really fascinating. This is definitely a field that is evolving rapidly. I know that in addition to sentience, there are many other scientific and philosophical areas of research that play heavily into animal welfare. Lauren, can you share a few of those with us? Sure, Kim. Uh, so one area is around animal cognition more broadly. So researchers are demonstrating, uh, increasingly demonstrating advanced cognition across a variety of animal species. Uh, so from raccoons to hyenas to corvids like crows and cephalopods like octopuses, uh, many individuals have been able to, for instance, solve complex puzzles, troubleshooting and understanding multi-step processes. And many species have also demonstrated tool use, which was once considered something that made humans unique. However, a lot of these tests have been critiqued for focusing on signs of human-like intelligence in other species, rather than understanding that species, much like individual humans, might have different types of intelligence or capabilities, and none should be valued over others. So just because an animal can't, for instance, solve a multi-step puzzle, for a food reward doesn't mean they aren't intelligent in terms of their own species-specific needs, survival, communication, or other characteristics. Um, and then a second area is animal emotions. So we're increasingly understanding the complex emotional lives of animals who experience many of the same emotional states as humans, although of course this is incredibly challenging to prove empirically. But there's evidence that some other than human animal species might have very different and even more complex emotional lives than humans. For example, neuroscientist Lori Marino has written about orca and dolphin brain physiology, where cetacean brains, uh, some cetacean brains actually have a larger and more elaborate limbic system, indicating that they might have more complicated emotional capabilities when compared with humans. And then when you look at behaviors uh, displayed by cetaceans, things like grieving deceased family members, social cohesion, or for example, males who stay with their mothers for their whole lives. And then when she dies, they stop eating and die as well. It really pushes us to take seriously that humans are not all that unique in terms of our emotional complexity. Uh, and then there are a few other areas like animal cultures. So we're starting to recognize the cultural dimension of other animals' lives, meaning the ways that learned behaviors are passed down from one individual to another and that uh, differentiate particular groups from one another. So some group-specific traditions that have been documented include cultures of different songs amongst groups of birds and whales, a tradition of potato washing in certain groups of Japanese macaques, 
and groups of chimpanzees who clasp hands while they groom, and even dolphins who learn from their mothers to wear sea sponges on their noses while they forage for fish among the coral. So um, there's a really interesting recent paper by Simon Fitzpatrick and Kristen Andrews published in the journal Philosophy of Science on animal culture and animal welfare. They argue that ignoring animals' cultures can have deep impacts on welfare and that the opportunity to express culture may be a positive dimension of welfare that should be taken into account. A couple of final areas are language, where there's been effort to decode birdsong, bat vocalizations, and even honeybee dances as languages. So the more we learn about other species communications, the more we understand that language is not a uniquely human capacity. And then finally, in terms of morality, there's increasing evidence that other animal species can behave in ways that demonstrate a sense of things like fairness or altruism. So studies have shown animals helping others in need for no apparent gain, consoling others who are distressed, or refusing to participate in activities if another individual isn't treated equally. So these are all some really interesting ways of thinking about um, animals' capacities. Thanks, Lauren. Those are such fascinating concepts. Um, Lee, what are your thoughts on how this evolving science may apply to individuals working in the veterinary profession? The key is that the latest science is increasingly challenging the idea that humans are radically different from and superior to other species. Historically, we have been too conservative in affording sentience to animals with assumptions that they are automata. So for veterinarians, it is particularly important to challenge these preconceptions and to extend the precautionary principle to ensure that animals that are potentially sentient are treated as such until it is shown otherwise. Within the veterinary context, this is particularly relevant when thinking about strategies for preventing negative emotions, such as fear and pain. In addition, there are many features that have traditionally been thought of as uniquely human, like emotions, culture, and morality, which we are increasingly understanding um, other than human animals to also possess. This is important for animal practitioners because it urges us to appreciate that animals have complex emotional worlds with individual wants and needs, and emphasizes that we need to carefully consider what they might be communicating to us. For example, animals have the capacity to experience trauma, which can shape their future experiences and behavior and leave them open to being re-traumatized through specific interactions with people. And if we consider the potential for expression of culture as being integral to welfare, then this raises many questions about how to create the conditions for animals to continue expressing or living within particular cultural milieus in the case of domesticated companion and farmed animals. And this links back to a focus on not just preventing suffering, but encouraging positive welfare and a life worth living. Thank you, Lee. It's so important to stay current on these topics in science and consider their impact as we work so closely with animals. Let's move to our next topic. How do understandings of welfare relate to broader trends in terms of societal practices and animal ethics? So mainstream societal views and values about animals are slowly shifting as are our relationships with them. So many individuals, including those who live with and work with animals, have for a long time challenged the claims and dominant knowledge paradigms about animals and their capacities, understanding them as complex beings with personalities and emotions. So with respect to animal welfare as a framework, it's one approach among many to thinking about how we should treat animals. Some strengths of a welfare approach are that it's measurable. 
So we have animal welfare sciences with innovative ways of quantifying experiential states and preferences in other species. So it provides a common language for speaking about and measuring animal experiences and well-being. So, but there are some challenges with the welfare framework. Um, it's really the status quo uh, in our society that it's all right for humans to use other species for our own purposes, as long as they aren't treated with cruelty that exceeds some sort of boundary. But who gets to decide this boundary? What's an acceptable level of welfare? How can we enforce it? And how can we justify the underlying speciesism so that we have different rules for how we can treat other than human animals versus humans simply based on species membership. There can also be some problematic ambiguity um, as the welfare standards or quality of life we'd consider as acceptable vary by species, but not for reasons based necessarily on animals' capabilities. For example, pigs and dogs are very similar in terms of their needs and capacities, but we're willing to accept much poorer welfare standards for pigs than we do for dogs for cultural and economic reasons. So there are some other perspectives on how we should relate to animals, uh, including an animal rights or liberation framework, which hold that many of the features or capabilities that have been used to argue for human rights are also held by other than human species as well. So it's about expanding our moral circle to say that all beings who have certain capacities are deserving of certain rights or consideration regardless of species membership. Usually that capacity is sentience or sapience uh, or being the subject of a life. And this makes one deserving of certain inalienable rights, like the right to life or the right to freedom. It means that one should be treated as an end in themselves, rather than as a means to someone else's end, as we often treat animals. Importantly, arguing for animals' rights doesn't mean that they should have the same rights as humans necessarily, like the right to an education or the right to vote, but that they should have certain rights depending on their capabilities and interests. Again, things like the right to life or the right to, to liberty. Some limitations or critiques of an animal rights framework are that they're grounded in liberal humanist thinking. So other species uh, end up being valued according to their similarity to humans, which really maintains humans as the benchmark or the circle of that, uh, the center of the circle of moral considerability. That is definitely an interesting viewpoint. Are there any opposing views? Uh, so others coming from a feminist or a post-human viewpoint might ask if we should be developing ethical ways of relating to each other, not necessarily based on features like complex cognition or social contracts, but rather on things like our shared vulnerability or an ethics based on care. They ask what really makes me want others to treat me a certain way or to treat me with respect. And usually it's that I am vulnerable in this world. I can be harmed and I don't wish to be. And it's so intuitive that other species also have these features and feel this way and so should be similarly respected. But a limitation of ethics of care approaches is that they don't necessarily prescribe particular moral codes or rules, which can make it challenging to apply or to reach consensus when there are disagreements about what caring relationships with other species should look like. And it's also really important to recognize that many other worldviews or ways of knowing understand animals in a manner that's very different to dominant Eurocentric frameworks, seeing them as kin or as beings not dissimilar from or inferior to humans. For instance, work of Indigenous scholars, knowledge keepers, and activists critique Eurocentric assumptions and ways of relating to other species. Uh, just as two examples, Margaret Robinson at Dalhousie has written about animal personhood and veganism from a Mi'kmaq perspective, 
And Cree author Billy Ray Belcourt has written about the link linkages between colonialism, indigenous erasure, and the oppression of other than human animals. Uh, so these are really important perspectives to take into account as well. Yes, yeah, such important perspectives to consider. Based on this, what are the takeaways for individuals working in the veterinary profession? So there are many ways to understand our obligations to animals, and welfare science is one aspect. Animal welfare science as a discipline is focused on understanding animal wants and needs and developing strategies to adequately address these wants and needs, but these scientific approaches need to be considered within an ethical framework for application. Questions about use of animals by humans and the level of consideration that should be extended to particular animals are informed by science, but ultimately about ethics. Ethical frameworks like rights or ethics of care try to dismantle anthropocentrism and speciesism by saying that our ethical obligations to animals should not be radically different from those with other humans due to species membership alone. How society thinks about and treats animals is complex and evolving, and communities will have different understandings of who animals are and what is owed to them. So in recent years, clients increasingly see animals as family members and have different ethical values that will inform their relationships with them. And veterinarians need to be able to adapt their approach to respect and accommodate these different perspectives. At a simple level, we might see this as increasing client expectations for use of cooperative care in clinic to reduce stress levels for individual animals. So how does this all feed into the legal context around animals and how it impacts animal welfare? Yeah, and that's a really interesting topic. So um, these scientific and societal contexts shape our legal structures in ways that matter a great deal for animals. We see variability in which animals are included for different types of legal protection related to animal welfare. So worldwide, most legislation is focused on vertebrates with special consideration often afforded to octopi. However, some species such as great apes are afforded special protections because of characteristics that are thought to put them more at risk. Whereas other species have reduced protections either because they are perceived to have less capacity for sentience or they have increased utility to humans in a manner where protection is incompatible with human needs. So one example that's local for Ontario is the agricultural exception to the Provincial Animal Welfare Services Act, where agricultural animals are exempt if activities are in accordance with the reasonable and generally accepted practices of agricultural animal care, management, or husbandry. For example, castration of is often performed on farm by farm staff without general anesthesia or local anesthetic based on standard industry practice. If we contrast this with standard expectations for a neuter of a companion dog, we can see obvious differences. And the pig approach when used with a dog would likely result in charges being laid. Another example um, of speciesism in legislation is from the United States with the Animal Welfare Act. And so this act covers research, testing, exhibition, transport, and dealers, um, so broad ranging, um, but it specifically excludes birds, rats, and mice. Therefore, these species have no legal protection through this legislation and their housing and care are not monitored by USDA inspectors in the same way that they would be for other species. They are afforded some protection by other legislation for research involving federal funding or under the Food and Drug Administration, but are excluded from this broader legislation. 
So in general, society has different expectations for different categories of animals. The most striking example is comparing the life of a rat, if we consider it as a pest, as a research subject, or as a companion animal. And so if we think about the welfare of these different categories of rats and the protections which they would be afforded, um, we can see quite dramatic differences across. And how are things changing or how could they change in the future? So the, uh, the context in Canada, as with many nations, are that animals are considered property rather than persons under the law. And this really limits what sort of protections they can be offered. But there are groups who are working to change this. So as an example, the Non-Human Rights Project has been adv advocating for legal standing for animals in the United States. So you might have recently heard about their case on behalf of Happy the Elephant at the Bronx Zoo, which was filed under habeas corpus, the common law right to bodily liberty. So they've been trying to demonstrate that elephants, like humans, are the types of beings deserving of the right to bodily liberty because of their capacities and interests, and that this right is being infringed by the Bronx Zoo, where she's living in isolation in a space that can't meet her needs and without companionship. This is a noteworthy case because although ultimately the judges ruled against it, it's the first time in history that the highest court of an English speaking jurisdiction has heard a case demanding a legal right for a being who is not human. And importantly, two judges actually filed dissents to the ruling, meaning that there is juridical support for other than human rights, even if it remains a minority at this time or in this case. But there are many other cases of other jurisdictions where legal rights for other than human beings or entities have already been acknowledged. Uh, as one example, India's constitution states that all citizens have a duty to protect and improve the natural environment, including forests, rivers, and wildlife, and to have compassion for all living creatures. The rights of Te Arawera National Park the Wangani River in Aotearoa, New Zealand, were granted legal recognition in 2014 due to the activism of Maori land defenders. And most re recently, Bolivia and Ecuador have recognized the legal rights of nature. Um, and excitingly, just this year, Ecuador became the first country to give some individual animals rights. So wild animals in particular now have the legal right to exist. We're likely a long way from seeing this in Canada or for seeing legal rights for domesticated, particularly farmed animals, since challenging their legal status as objects and property would have such huge economic consequences. But hopefully we'll continue to see changes in animals' legal status as diverse voices continue to push back against views of animals as radically different from and inferior to humans. Thanks, Lauren. Lee, how does this impact those working in the veterinary profession? What role do they play now and in the future? Yeah, and veterinarians play a really critical role. Um, so we sometimes use terms like guardian or parent when we're speaking about the animals that live in our lives because owner makes many of us uncomfortable. But as much as we are increasingly seeing companion animals as family members, the reality is that under the law, they are merely owned property with no rights of their own. This has serious consequences for our ability to ameliorate their circumstances. But there are cases around the world where legal rights and recognitions are being granted to other than human animals and entities. And we need to keep pushing here because until these changes occur, the deep ethical tensions between treating an animal as a patient but answering only to their owner as a client won't be resolved. We all have a role to play in improving the lives of animals and veterinarians have a huge part to play. 
They are seen as the experts on animals and are specifically named as such in most legislation and therefore have a duty to translate their knowledge into action and advocacy. So hopefully things like legal property status of animals can change in the future. Those are great points. We have come to the end of our time together. Thank you to Dr. Van Patter and Dr. Neil for an engaging discussion on the current and emerging science, ethics, and law regarding animal welfare. Thanks so much for having us. I really appreciated this conversation. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to share some of these different ideas. As mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this is one session in a series of podcasts called Protecting Animal Welfare in Today's World, Building Unity Through Understanding. Today was session one. The next session will be announced in the new year. Please keep an eye out for more details. For access to the podcasts at a later date, please visit www.cvo.org forward slash resources.